Do you want to feel great about getting older? A leading expert from Stanford University says you should, that older people are happier people. On today's podcast, we'll find out why and how it can work for you. Welcome to the AARP Washington State Podcast. I'm Bruce Carlson of the AARP Washington State Office in Seattle, and this is the AARP Washington State Podcast. Our guest today is Stanford psychology professor, Dr. Laura Karstensen. Dr. Karstensen is a world-renowned scholar on the emotional and practical aspects of getting older. And she says we tend to get happier as we age, that society has a lot to gain from an aging population, and she has the research to prove it. In this wide-ranging interview, our AARP Washington State Director, Doug Shadell sat down with Laura to explore her research and theories and find out why she feels that the last third of life can be the best time of our lives and an opportunity for both the individual and society to be better than ever before. Dr. Carsonson is the founding director of the Stanford Center on Longevity, an institute at Stanford University which explores the lives of people over age 50 and improving the well-being of people of all ages. She's published over 150 academic articles, and her popular TED Talk, called Older People Are Happier, has been viewed more than 1.2 million times. Here's Dr. Laura Carsonson, interviewed by AARP's Doug Shadell. So Laura, um, could you talk about what you think the biggest myth is out there about our aging society? The, the biggest myth about aging societies is that it's a catastrophe, that having more older people in a society is going to uh, hurt the quality of life for people of all ages. Uh, and the truth is that this additional 30 years of life and a reduction in fertility rates is actually a great cultural achievement. I've heard you say before that um, we're pretty hard on ourselves too about it. Like we're not only is it a catastrophe, but people don't know how to age and that maybe we should give ourselves a break because this is such a new phenomenon. Could you talk a little bit about just don't give me the whole demographic speech, but just how recent it is that people live this long. Uh, Old age as a normative stage in life is brand new. Uh, Life expectancy nearly doubled in a single century. In the 20th century, life expectancy went from 47 to 77. So part of the reason this aging society thing seems so hard is that there's a mismatch between the culture that guides us through life and the length of time that we're living. We continue to live our lives today by models that evolved around lives half as long. That is, get all your education early in life, marry, have a few kids, work like a dog, retire, and shortly thereafter, die. (laughs) Now that model made sense when people were living on average to 50. But when people are living on average, you know, to soon 90s or maybe even 100, that model doesn't make any sense at all. So we need to quickly find ways to uh, redesign life so that we can stretch out uh, all of those parts of life that are so important and thereby improve quality of life, not just for older people, but for young parents and adolescents and children. Life can improve at all ages 
because we have this gift of time. And, and there's a benefit, is there not, to this additional wisdom? I mean, we used to get up to the point where, okay, now I know a lot more than I did before, and then it ends. How do we tap into the wisdom that comes with that third age of life, or whatever mm. you want to call it? Mm. Yeah, when, when people express great unease about societies top-heavy with older people, I think they're missing a great opportunity to tap a resource that has never existed before in human history. That is, millions of older people who have great knowledge, who have their major personal uh, accomplishments in raising their children and reaching the peak of their careers behind them, who are emotionally stable and focused on outwardly on the world and society, that we have, we've, we've got that. We've got that group for the first time ever. And one of the most exciting things that we can do today is to think about ways to tap that resource. What do we do with those millions of people? How can we funnel them into improving life? Yeah. So rather than viewing it through the lens of, oh, it's going to collapse the Social Security system and the mm -hmm. Medicare system, we'll probably be able to fix those systemic problems mm -hmm. somehow. Mm -hmm. But it's really just getting people to see there's not, there's not enough models, maybe. Right. Is that part of the solution, is to get people models for... Right. Look at how this person completely reinvented themselves when mm -hmm. they were 65. Mm -hmm. We know they exist out there, but mm -hmm. you know, where are they and how can I do that? You think it's possible for a person to reinvent themselves at the age of 65? Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of possibilities that we've only begun to imagine. Uh, we focus mostly today in our conversations about aging societies on the problems. We worry that Social Security is going to go bust and Medicare is costing far too much money. We should worry about those issues. We do need to fix them. Uh, but we now have a potential uh, to use this new social capital, human capital, if you will, and we need to find ways that help individuals reinvent themselves. Uh, today's 65-year-olds have the same mortality risk as 59-year-olds had in 1970, just 1970. So we have pushed out this period of disability, of morbidity, and older people today are healthier than their counterparts were 30, 40 years earlier. So let, let's start thinking about 65-year-olds as 59-year-olds, and what, what would they do? You know, what, what can we do with this new group of people? There are so many opportunities. Uh, universities need to become uh, institutions with revolving doors where, sure, the young come, but so do people throughout their lives to return and retool and go out and make use of their expertise and build on it to do something new and different. Now, one of the things that changes individually with age is people's goals and desires. And the older people get, the more they seem to care about making a difference, doing something that's emotionally meaningful, that's really deeply important to them. So we need to find ways that we can enable the majority of people to do that in an efficient, effective way. That's interesting. So I was going to ask you about 
socio-emotional selectivity theory and the idea that people want closer relationships with fewer people, but you're saying also that they want to, they want just more meaning, whether it's with their family members or mm -hmm. whether it's with some kind of volunteer engagement or new professional mm -hmm. identity. It's mm -hmm. why why do you suppose that is that as we get older, meaning becomes uh, comes to the forefront. Mm -hmm. is, is, uh, yeah. Uh, well, according to socio-emotional selectivity theory, the theory that my colleagues and students and I have developed over the years, uh, as people grow older, they increasingly perceive time as more limited. And when time is limited, people set different kinds of goals than when time is open-ended. When time is limited, people see very clearly what's important and what's not. They come to savor the relationships that they have and care less about uh, opening up more and more and more new ones, but rather to say, this is what I really care about, and then to deeply invest in it. There was an earlier theory in psychology about aging, and it was called disengagement theory. And this theory also suggested that people's networks, social networks, and so on got smaller. But according to this theory, that was because people became emotionally flattened and, as the name of the theory suggests, disengaged. What we have found over the years is that as people grow older, they don't become disengaged at all. They become focused like a laser on what really matters. Now that's a, a, a population that can, can really only stand to help society and help solve society's ills. So for example, is there evidence that they become less involved in what, in, in sort of the, the superficial trappings of, you know, like materialism? Is there evidence that people become less materialistic as they get older? I um, haven't seen studies that suggest one way or another that people are more or less materialistic, although there is some evidence that older people make purchases like large appliances and cars and houses and so on less than younger people do. Um, I think some of that is because people have found what it is they need, you know, they like what they have, you know, you test out new cars and so on, you find the one you like, you keep it, you know, over time. Yeah. So I think there's some reason to think that older people may be less materialistic and older societies may, may even be better, say, for the environment. Uh, so I think there's reason to, to think about that. Well, the, the main thing that changes psychologically is that people are emotionally uh, balanced, on balance happy. Uh, they also are more open to reconciliation. They're more appreciative. They feel in day-to-day -day life more gratitude. And again, these are qualities that stand to benefit societies with large groups of older adults. At the Stanford Center on Longevity, our aim is to change uh, the, the course of human aging. Now, when we first began and started talking with people about that lofty goal, uh, you can imagine a lot of rolling eyes. How do you change the course of human aging? The more we thought about it, when sat down with our colleagues around campus here at Stanford, the, we came up with a focused agenda. And our current mantra is that to the extent that the majority of people arrive at old age mentally sharp, physically fit, and financially secure, the problems of individual aging and societal aging really fade away 
and we can shift from conversations about old age and frailty and infirmity to conversations about long life. And we believe that those are conversations that will be much more interesting and productive to have. The more we've repeated this mantra, mind, mobility, financial security, the more we've come to believe that science and technology truly can contribute dramatically to those three aspects of life. And so if we can improve cognitive functioning into very advanced ages, if we can ensure through science and technology that we can both change environments and change individual fitness, and if we can develop new ways to imagine and facilitate financial security that will extend throughout life, then we can have a whole different kind of society, uh, a whole different aging society, uh, and one that will ultimately be engaged and contribute to families, to communities, to workplaces, and again, ways we've really never imagined possible. Hmm. You, so you would include mobility in with physical health, I guess. Is that you conflating right. those two? Uh, right. Well, what we're trying to do at the center is to solve problems and to focus on problems as opposed to, uh, say, diseases or more generic kinds of questions about health and aging. So we're very interested in how we might apply science and technology to allow people to stay independent, essentially, to function, to move throughout their lives in ways that they choose. So it's a slightly different question than physical health status, but obviously arthritis, sarcopenia, uh, diseases related to, to muscle and bone uh, and, and cardiovascular health and so on are related. But what we're, what we're focusing on is, is functionality. So we're saying, we're, let's, let's set aside hypertension, let's set aside uh, uh, diabetes, obesity, problems that could affect people's function, functional capacity, and say, what do we do for the individual, and if not for the individual, for environments that will allow people to continue to move? And so it's a slightly different problem. It's a slightly different, it's a problem about um, uh, movement as opposed to overall health. You're, you're presupposing then that you're not really addressing solving the obesity problem as an example, mm -hmm. as much as saying, if so, then what? Right. We'd like to do a little bit of both of that. Certainly we'd like to do research that will help people stay fit and functional. But what distinguishes our agenda, I think, from many in the health domain is that we're also ready to accept that there are frailties, vulnerabilities that people will develop as they get older. How can we develop devices? How can we change environments so that those vulnerabilities just don't matter? I think of it as eyeglasses. You know, I would be disabled today. I would not be able to do the job that I do as a professor at Stanford if I could only see as well as my eyes uh, naturally would let me see. But I don't think about myself as being disabled in the visual domain at all because I just pop on these glasses in the morning and I see fine. Well, let's think about that when we start to think about the design of airports and staircases and homes. How can we modify the physical environment so that the problems people may have are no longer problems? 
Um, I recently heard uh, about uh, some new hearing devices, for example, where they're using Bluetooth technology to directly link people's hearing to the source of the sound. And in some places now in New York City and subway stations, you can step onto a mat that is Bluetooth enabled and the person you're talking to in the booth is able to speak in a way that goes through that device you're standing on and is directly transmitted to your hearing aid and you see perfectly clearly. Wow. Hearing loops are being put into auditoriums around the country so that people will be able to hear much better when they go out to a symphony or to a play. That's the kind of technology that isn't solving the problem. It doesn't mean people no longer have a hearing problem, but it's not a hearing problem. I should say they may have hearing loss, but it doesn't create the problem. Yeah. And that's, we see great potential for technology in those areas. So sort of aiding human adaptation. I mean, it's, it's really. You know, humans, not, none of us would be alive today if we had to fend for ourselves without technology. We, if we suddenly took the, the US population and of any age and said, you're on your own, uh, we would fail horribly. Uh, what makes humans so able to survive is our ability to adapt and to develop cultures that support us and support the kinds of vulnerabilities we have. Again, this is true for all ages. You know, no baby, no infant would survive without the kind of culture that that infant is born into. Again, the current culture we're living in is a culture that was built around lives half as long. We haven't extended those cultural supports to 50 and older, and we need to do that with great haste. Mm -hmm. And again, if we do, the rewards are going to be immeasurable. I would imagine too there's a lot of financial incentives to do this, with, to, to do these, come up with these technological innovations that facilitate aging. The financial incentives to address these issues and change environments so that older people can engage in them effectively, the financial incentives are profound. Uh, again, if we can tap the potential that older people have, then we will all benefit. To the extent that people work longer, paid or unpaid, to the extent that people continue to engage with their children and their grandchildren and younger people, to the extent that older people are out and about and consuming services in the world, economies will benefit. We will all benefit by having uh, the most people possible contribute to society. I want to ask you about positivity. Mm -hmm. um, not just because you're sort of inclined towards positivity yourself, probably by nature, but, <laughs> but you have a lot, done a lot of research on this and that as we age, mm -hmm. not only are we looking for deeper meaning and emotion, mm -hmm. but because how do we get people's attention? I mean, if we have ideas uh, about how people might change to improve their lives, you sort of have to get their attention in an environment that is absolutely cluttered. Mm -hmm. Everybody, that's, that's the big game is, how do you get my attention? Mm -hmm. Is it strategically um, wise to, to, to lead with something, a positive message to get people's attention? The older I get, am I more attracted to a positive message mm -hmm. than to a negative message, just as a matter of strategy, if mm -hmm. nothing else, mm -hmm. do you think? 
one of the problems with our communications targeting older adults today is that an awful lot of those communications are uh, warnings, these dire messages about what might go wrong and they might have this illness or that illness and you better be worried about this and you better be worried about that. Our research shows that older people are more likely to attend to and remember positive messages than negative messages. This is called the positivity effect. We've shown it in laboratory studies in, in, in our lab and now many labs around the, the, the world have shown the same effect. People, as they get older, begin to attend to, see, recall positive information. And we need to note that when we're developing messages to try to draw older people in and to engage their attention. Uh, we need to, to frame the opportunities in positive ways as opposed to simply continuing to, to talk about the crisis on the horizon. Well, and you see, here's, let me play the devil's advocate, and you know more about this than I do, but fear is a great motivator, mm. right? And we were talking with Brian Newson about the two parts of the brain, you know, the pleasure center and the pain center and the fear center and all these centers, and I'm not sure what they're all doing, but, mm -hmm. um, but isn't it fairly settled science on some level that we respond to fear. Mm -hmm. And you see all these negative ads on the, in the politicians, mm -hmm. the pharmaceutical industry has all these commercials that you were just describing about you're gonna be afraid of this disease and that disease. Where does positivity come in? Why don't we see more ads? You know, mm -hmm. if there's a financial incentive to lead with positivity because older people, these ads are all targeted at older people mm -hmm. and all their ailments, but yet they're scaring them and <laughs> inducing them to act based on fear. Mm -hmm. And I'm not trying mm -hmm. to be argumentative yeah, about it. I just yeah. wonder what your take is on the, the yeah. balance between those two. Yeah. The, the traditional wisdom about communication um, that organizations use to try to capture people's attention. The traditional view is that you scare people. And again, I think that that comes from uh, a, a focus on younger populations and that wisdom is actually derived for how you get younger people's attention because it works with them. They, they pay more attention to negative than positive. Seems not to work with older adults. Uh, older adults, when they lose, feel just as bad as younger adults, but they don't go there before it happens. Uh, and we have some research showing neural activation is different when older people are anticipating they might lose something versus they might gain something. And uh, we see real differences by age. And right? um, people are equally excited about gain. Yeah. that older people are less bothered by loss. Less bothered by loss. Yeah. You know, I think older people may be less bothered by loss because there's real loss that comes with age. And if you wake up every morning and you think of all the things that might happen today, I don't know how you get out of bed in the morning. Instead, it seems like what older people do is they say, it's another beautiful day. I have a good opportunity to go on and to do something, to live my life one more day. And that's really good for mental health. Uh, but again, it's a, it's a shift from focusing on what might go wrong to focusing on what might go right. And advertisers and institutions that want to communicate and tap the resources of older people would do well to uh, take note of that research finding. Because you're, you're su suggesting that maybe it's misguided to be using all these scare tactics with older people because they're mm -hmm. somehow tuning it out. I mean, that is your finding, right? Is when you put a, a positive message, a negative message, they're more, they remember the positive one more. 
what always comes to my mind when you think of negative and po versus positive messaging is the advertisement of the older person laying on the floor saying, help me, help me, I've fallen and I can't get up. <laughs> Nobody wants that device. Because <laughs> nobody wants to believe day in, day out, I might fall and nobody's going to find me for several days. That's not something people really want to believe, even if it's true. And by the way, falls are, occur, a real problem for older people, but on any given day, the odds of you falling and not being able to get up are pretty low. And so as you go about your life and you're living life day to day and you're appreciating what you've got, saying, oh my gosh, this terrible thing might happen to you is not particularly uh, effective. And on average, that's probably good. That's probably a good attitude to have toward life. I want to talk about time. Mm -hmm. um, and this may be my own obsession, but you've done a lot of research about the effects of time. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a central part of your research thing. And this whole idea that um, why people don't do things today that will benefit them tomorrow. Mm -hmm because of this time, you know, hyperbolic time discounting, and probably shouldn't mm -hmm. use that word, but mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I remember you telling me at one point about uh, some research you did where you had like a hologram. Somebody did this research where they took a person and they built oh, a vision mm -hmm. of what they would look like mm -hmm. right, right. 30 years later right. to see whether that would yeah. impact their present behavior, right. to imagine Right. 30 years. Could you just talk a little bit about that research? And, mm -hmm. Because that seems like a huge barrier for yeah. people to do everything from mm -hmm. taking care of themselves to saving mm -hmm. money. Right. That's a huge issue, right. right? Right. As people today begin to anticipate much longer lives, they must also come to realize that the behavior that they live decades earlier will have an effect on the outcomes later in life. Uh, financial security, uh, cognitive fitness, physical mobility, all of those really are uh, the result of accumulation of behavioral lifestyle practices that go on across adulthood. So we have to find ways to help people envision positive outcomes later in life and really be able to relate to them well so that they will engage in behaviors decades earlier uh, that may take some sacrifice. Can we get people to begin to save more money for retirement, uh, put away more for the future? Can we get people to pass by that second piece of cake, uh, to stop smoking today and not drink quite so much so that they'll be healthier and fitter later? This has always been a problem for humans. And in all likelihood, that's because throughout evolution, our lives were short. We didn't really have to put off and sacrifice today for something that might play out decades into the future. You know, the people who did that, they are not among our ancestors. You know, <laughs> our ancestors are the ones who ate, drank, and were merry whenever they could be. Now we have much longer lives to plan for, and we're thinking at the Center on Longevity of ways we can use technology to help people envision these longer lives. Mm. One way that we found effective is to use virtual reality. Jeremy Balinson, a professor of communications here at Stanford, runs a virtual reality laboratory. 
and several years ago, Hal Hirschfield and Jeremy Balinson and Bill Sharp, a professor of, of business and economist, and I worked together on a project where we used virtual reality to try to help younger people relate to themselves as old people. And we were interested in whether if they did, they would save more money. So we brought them into the laboratory, into this virtual reality laboratory. We take a photograph of these young people and we create a digital avatar for each participant in the study. And one condition that digital avatar looks like they look today, the young person. And in another condition, we age morphed the digital avatar to look like that person would look when they are 60, 65 years old. The young student puts on the VR headgear and for about 30 minutes, what they see is themselves in an apartment. There's a mirror on one wall and every time they look in that mirror, they turn their head, they see their older self looking back at them or in the other condition, their younger self. And after they interacted with themselves at the same age or an advanced age, we asked these participants a lot of questions. But among those questions was, if you had $1,000 today, how much would you allocate to your retirement? And those young people who had interacted with their older avatars saved twice as much for retirement as those participants who interacted with themselves at the same age. Now, we don't really think that we're going to put every person in this country into the headgear in a virtual reality lab, but I think the main point of the study is that we, when we can establish a visceral connection between myself now and myself at 80, when we really feel that connection, uh, we do better and helping to prepare for those years. And that's what we need to do in society. We need to find ways that help make that continuity, that, that sense of, of self-consistency available and something that we know about and we all feel on a pretty regular basis. Why do you think mm -hmm. we need that visceral role? What, what explains the yeah. discount yeah. rate? Yeah. Yeah. Like what, what do you, why, do you, why is there always a discount mm -hmm. rate for this future? Yeah, we, we need to make a visceral connection between ourselves at our current ages and ourselves at future ages because uh, taking care of a self uh, requires some real sense of continuity. That's me. You know, the reason why we think it's so likely that people set goals and so unlikely that they follow through on them is because they're not connected. So we can say after eating a big meal one night, I'm going on a diet January 1st. Well, it's that satiated self <laughs> that's making that goal. And it's easier if you're full, <laughs> it's easy to go on a diet. Yeah. We don't take into account that January 1, we're gonna wake up hungry. And that's a different self. So we need, to, again, to, to have, find ways that people can understand what they'll feel, what their emotions will be, under different kinds of circumstances. I mean, I hear younger people say on a regular basis, well, you know, if I don't save enough for retirement, what am I gonna wanna do anyway? You know, I'm gonna be old and not gonna wanna go out much. What do you need? You know, I can live on social security. And I'm like, yeah, could you do it tomorrow? Oh no, they couldn't do it tomorrow. We need to be able to let people know that that tomorrow is not so far away and they're, they're gonna still wanna do things. They're still gonna be themselves when they're 70 and 80 and 90 and 100 years old.
We've been talking a lot about financial decision making and financial security issues and marketers may not understand brain chemistry, but they understand what works. Yeah. And they understand that if you stimulate a want right. and take away the cost, yeah. all of a sudden people, and this is why this explains no interest for six years, right. you can have it all now. Yeah, I think uh, if psychology has taught us anything over the last 30 years about behavior change, it's that the way we're going about it is fundamentally wrong. We're asking every individual to pass by those temptations and to engage in hard work, you know, like exercise and saving money and all these things, and they should do it all on their own. And if they can't do it on their own, they're somehow a flawed person. And what we've learned is that when you focus on the individual and you tell the individual in a very tempting environment, don't, don't, don't fall for it, that they fail. <laughs> They might be able to survive a week or a day. I feel like I'm talking about diets now, right? You know, I mean, you know, you, you can make it for a little while. You can pass by a temptation. But we're talking about lives that are lasting decades. And, and we know that it's just too much to ask of individuals to repeatedly pass by something that looks good. So the answer, I believe, is not self-help at, at an individual level. It's modifying our environments so that the right choices are the easy choices to make. You know, knowledge alone is not a good taskmaster. That's what we've learned. And so we need to help people design their environments and for communities to design their environments and schools and universities design the environments so that the easiest thing a person can do is the healthy thing to do. I was trying to, that's exactly, mm -hmm. I think you just articulated it. Design it so that it's easy, mm -hmm. so that you're not constant. Because every study says you make too many decisions, your ability erodes. Right. Your willpower, everyone's willpower erodes. Right. Even right. the most disciplined person you'd perceive in the world, right. the reason they're disciplined is they're better at structuring <laughs> right. their environment right. to avoid the temptation to begin with. That's right. You know, this is why it's so much easier to get people to save money, actually, than diet. And it's because you can set up an opt-in, an opt-out program through your employer, or whatever. I mean, you can have a retirement program where all it takes is for you to one time sit down, fill out some paperwork, and say, "Take this out of my paycheck before I ever see it." And you do it once, and it's done. Yeah. The contrast to dieting is stark because every time I'm hungry, I have to sit down and make those decisions again. Yeah. And we just, we just can't ask of people that they do the right thing in the face of, of uh, alternative temptations over and over and over again, day in, day out. Well, what we know, at least, is it doesn't work for the vast majority of people. This is a huge insight to me because I, you know, when Daniel Kahneman said that, and you've said that, and people whose opinion I really respect are all sort of saying this, I'm like, well, what have I been wasting my time doing the last 30 years? <laughs> you know, trying to say, if you yeah. just knew enough, right. you could navigate it. Yeah. But you're still saying it requires knowledge. It requires knowledge of the fact that you will fail if you don't change the environment. Knowledge is a good thing. Knowledge is important. But yeah. knowledge in itself doesn't change behavior. Yeah. We have to start teaching people how to create sort of new structures mm -hmm. that allow them to make easy choices that are good for them. Right. Yeah, yeah I think of the example um, of school lunches. You know, we say, well, you know, maybe we should stop 
selling pizza, you know, and macaroni and cheese to our children and and in school as they passed by the Coca-Cola machines, you know, at the front door of the cafeteria. Uh, those are those that's a terrible thing to do to our children. Now, what we've done in recent years is we put a few oranges or apples next to the macaroni and cheese and lo and behold that's not very effective either. <laughs> uh, but we found ways, there are some researchers who have found if you put the, actually put the apples and the oranges at the front of the line people are more likely to take them than at the end of the line. There are some simple design changes that we could uh, make that would improve the health of our, our children. Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand why we can't put only healthy food in schools yeah. so that our children, you know, the, the, the options they have are all among healthy choices. You can make good tasting healthy food and I, I, it's beyond me why we haven't done that already. Well, we have this culture of more choice is better. Right. Do you think more choice is better? Oh, there's a wonderful book called The Tyranny of Choice and <laughs> how having more choices can be agonizing for humans. Uh, we seem to do best with a limited number of choices. But and we equate it with freedom, right? And it gets into this whole debate about, you know, Richard Thaler talks about libertarian paternalism. Mm -hmm. That is to say, an opt-in, mandatory opt-in mm -hmm. savings program is libertarian paternalism because you're nudging people, yeah, yeah. Um, but they don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. They will, right. but because of the status quo bias or whatever you want to call right. inertia, right. nobody ever drops out. Once they opt in, there 90% of them stay in. There are people who argue against making environmental changes because they say it's paternalistic and that we're imposing our will on other people. And the th important thing to remember is that that's true. But it's just as true that when we make people uh, make a choice from a number of unhealthy options, that's just as paternalistic. Uh, so we have to be able to come to some understanding that the environments we live in will influence the choices that we make and they will influence how healthy our population is. And then we can make those changes at the level of workplaces, at the level of communities, at the level of, uh, you know, federal transportation and so on. I mean, we, we, can, we can make these changes at a number of different levels and the population will be healthier. So just one closing shot from you about um, aging and positivity. Tell me again <laughs> why it's a good thing that we're all getting older. <laughs> Tell me again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, in my mind, it's really curious how a species can nearly double the length of their lives and complain about it. You know, only humans, right? <laughs> only humans. We've got, on average, 30 extra years to realize our dreams, to spend time with our families, to pursue our work and our goals and to say that's a bad thing is laughable to me. Of course this is a good thing. This may be the greatest cultural achievement in human history that in a less than a century we've nearly doubled the length of time people can live. This is extraordinary. But of course humans are creatures of culture and this is a cultural mismatch. So the culture that's guiding us through life was built around lives half as long. Of course there are problems when we suddenly double the length of life. 
but we can solve these problems. We can change culture, and we need to get at that right away. If we do, we will realize the opportunity that's been handed us with these extra years of life. Well, there you have it. We have something to look forward to as we age. If you'd like to learn more about successful aging, visit the Stanford Center on Longevity online at longevity.stanford.edu. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This content is copyright by AARP, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening and see you next time.